Today I want to talk to you, uh, of all things, about mid midterm elections. Uh, you say, oh, Pastor, please, I just got my husband to turn off the news. Uh, well, it hopefully won't be too painful. It's some scriptural principles. It's not an endorsement of candidates, but it is something that I think will help us as we continue to move forward in our role as Christians in this nation. I want to say thank you so much for the way you uh, prayed for me with the passing of my brother. I was so thankful to be able to be holding him in my arms when he went to heaven. And thank you for your prayers and your support. Uh, and thanks to Pastor Corey, who I think he's over in Brown Chapel today, but for uh, doing one of the best jobs of dealing with healing that I have ever heard. And he did it on very short notice. So thank you, Corey. Excellent. <clears throat> Excellent. Well, let's look to the uh, screen and let's pray together the great Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And Father, we ask you to help us today as we deal with the issue of midterm elections. We know that um, uh, we have to step outside clear commands of Scripture when we talk about elections because they, they didn't have that liberty in Bible days that we have, but there are some important principles. And not only are there important uh, principles about the election, but there are principles about us that are struggling through this election season. And we want to be part of the remnant. We want to be a church that you are proud of. We want to be a people that honor you and love you. And we're not going to be able to do that if you don't help us because our understanding's not perfect. So we commit this sermon to you and ask you to uh, overshadow us with angels and the grace of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, something happened. I, I really do believe this. I believe something happened in the world in 2020. It's easy to just identify it as COVID and new things happened that we had not had to face before. I don't know, some of those things that we faced in 2020, we faced back in the Spanish flu uh, days. Um, not many of you were around then, if, unless you're over 100, but uh, um, there were new things and there were things that weren't new, they were just redone. But I think something did happen in the spiritual realm. I think something happened, especially in Western nations, because God is, in my opinion, bringing us to a place of judgment so that we can repent and we can be blessed of God the way that he wants to. I, I had a dream that was very, very graphic and very, very powerful uh, back, uh, I'd have to look up the exact date, but it was in uh, around between 2005, 2008, somewhere in there. Um, and 
in this dream, there was a storm coming. There was a tsunami, as a matter of fact, that was ahead of the storm. And um, uh, the thing about it is that, you know, uh, I think the reason the Lord used that analogy was that tsunamis generally come in. And then when you think it's over, they come back out. And uh, generally speaking, I'm speaking with broad, in broad terms here, but in this dream, uh, I live there and the church, um, I wasn't in my house, but the church, this church was right behind me on high ground, a good space, beautiful building. Um, it, it was just a delight to pastor the church then as it is now. In the dream, this wasn't a reality, my brothers lived in Texas and Alabama, but in front of where I was standing, my one brother lived, and over to the right, my other brother lived. Now, let me be as concise and specific. The dream had to do with several things that I won't go into today because they're beyond the scope of the message, and it would take too long to give you the details. But as the, the um, tsunami was coming, I warned my brothers, we've got to get ready. People were at church. Some of you were here getting the church building ready to withstand this great uh, force. And the context of this was that I had decided to tell my brothers in detail about the long emergency. Now, I'd already had people that thought I was crazy, thought I was hearing, you know, a, a spirit of pessimism and it, it was, it, I felt like it cost a lot to share about the long emergency. And I didn't know if I could bear my brothers not receiving it from me. Uh, they were both Christians. That wasn't the issue. But thankfully, not long before that, I had talked to them about it. And they accepted it. They believed it was right. Um, uh, both of them did. And they began their preparation, you know, one more than the other one. But um, as the tsunami was coming, you know, the water left the bay, which is one of the first indicators that a tsunami is coming. It, it looks like the water is going the other way, but it's about to come in force. My brothers were preparing their house. I was preparing my house. The church was battening down, ready for the storm. And as the tsunami came in, there was tremendous destruction. The houses stood, the church stood, but let me tell you this about the church. The church, like if it was facing this way, by the time the, the tsunami came in, it had shifted just a little bit. Foundation was fine. I know that, I know that is not the way it works, but the foundation was fine. The church was fine. It had just shifted a little bit and was pointing in a direction, everything intact, but was pointing in a direction that it didn't point in before. Not a big shift, but a shift. And um, I won't go into the de details. One brother came out of his house, the other didn't. I didn't understand it then, but I came to understand that the brother said when, I mean, the, the Lord was saying, when this storm arrives, one of your brothers will not survive. I didn't understand that for several years. Uh, and, and then I didn't understand that the storm was coming. But sure enough, my eldest brother, uh, one, one of my heroes, he, he died from COVID during 2020. Um, and then in the dream, my other brother lived longer but had issues, lost his wife, 
which is what happened less than a year ago. And then he passed away too in the dream, which is what happened last Friday. So I began to, to, to wonder, you know, on the way home, Lord, is this, is this meaning that the storm we've talked about is here? And the Lord didn't say it was going to be the next day or anything like that, but I realized we were in the season. Okay, so um, we go through that, and then an alarm is sounded. I come to the church, I check on everybody, we begin to try to see if everyone's okay. Um, did I say this is a dream? I did say that, right? Okay. I didn't want you to think this really happened and you were on vacation or something and missed it. But, uh, um, and then we had an alarm. We had an alert that the, the water that had come in was now coming back. And as we prepared, um, same kind of devastation, only it was greater, greater devastation as the wave came back. And this time the church is shifted again foundation and all. The church isn't damaged, but the church goes from this to this. And again, I'm skipping a lot of stuff and weeks of prayer, but the Lord was saying, when this storm comes, the church is going to be intact. Church is going to be fine, but some of the focus will change. Some of the direction, some of the way you do things will change. It'll still be Christian life, but there will be significant changes. And um, I think we've begun to see some of that with, um, you know, our live stream ministry and the, 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 the pending changes we talked about a few weeks ago. But what I wanted to tell you about the dream that's pertinent for today is when the second wave came back, unlike the first wave, the first wave just kind of washed away everything. But when the second wave came back, it didn't wash away everything. It left stuff everywhere. There were plants and trees that I knew didn't belong to our neighborhood. There were, there were goods that were not the normal things you would see around the church. And I began to realize well, what's happened is a lot of stuff has been deposited on our property from the blowback of the storm. And there was a foul smell. There was, there were, I'm sorry, there were dead animals and there were some dead people. And we just, <clears throat> one of the things we realized we had to do is we've got to get rid of this stuff or it's going to contaminate everything. As I began to pray, I didn't understand this until 2020, but the Lord said there's going to be toxicity as a result of the storm. And unless you deal with the toxicity, it will take life. And, and um, so the, the dream ended with us trying to get things cleaned up. And I tell you what I honestly believe, and I know that God's word is our standard, not dreams. And, and I know that we would never put a dream or a, or a quote prophetic word or a, or a vision. It's never equal to the word of God. I know that. But I think when God does speak to us in dreams and visions, we need to listen. And um, I tell you what I believe has happened. Stuff was deposited on the landscape of our nation. And I'm not even talking about other nations. That's for preachers and prophets there to deal with. But there was a toxicity that settled on our nation in 2020. And it resulted in corrupting cynicism um, uh, disregard for authority, disregard for orthodoxy. 
And I think that since 2020 and the COVID outbreak, our culture has changed. I think our nation has changed. And I think there is a toxicity that's being breathed in by our culture. Uh, just look at the news, the absolute disregard for life, the, 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 the barbarity, the cruelty. I mean, our, our inner cities in particular are absolutely frightening. I was invited to a conference in a big city and I said, brother, I love you and I'd love to be a part of this, but why in the world do you think you're going to get me in that city? Why do I want to go there? And um, he, you know, he laughed and we talked and I said, I don't think that's wise. I, and and um, I, I said, now I might send Justin, but <laughs> no, I didn't say that. I'm just kidding. I, I said, we, I said, in fact, we're going to send you some money. We want to be a part of it. But I, I don't, I, I said, I wouldn't take my wife and children to that town just because of what's, uh, what I'm seeing on the news. He said, well, you got a good point. And um, I think we need to understand this. We have had, I believe, the opening salvo of the long emergency. And I believe that there is a blowback that's coming that is going to be more devastating than what 2020 and 2021 was. I'm not saying that to frighten you. I, I could be wrong. I know that's hard for you to grasp because it would you know, be the first time, but I, I could be wrong. And for those of you that are new to the church, listen to the laughter. You know that sarcasm. I'm just kidding. Um, but seriously, I do think, I think that unless God does something for us and mitigates some circumstances, I think our nation is headed for more severe judgment and more difficulty. And I think there is an attack on our families. I think there is an attack on the great institutions of our nation by spiritual principalities and powers. And I, I believe that on one hand, God is going to do some incredible things. I believe he's raising up a remnant among his people. And I want us to be a part of that remnant. I believe that God is able to do more than we can imagine in the midst of everything that's absolutely horrible. We are not dependent on the culture for our victory. We're not dependent on the culture for blessing. But I think that we need to understand that um, we are in a time that, as I said, there's an attack on the family. There's an attack on uh, just civility. There's an attack on the church. There's an attack on a lot of things that have provided stability. Now, are there problems? Absolutely. We're in a nation that has got to deal with the issues of racism and injustice. We have to do that. We're in a nation that I know not everybody agrees, but we've got to deal with the sin of abortion and human trafficking. These things are real. And loved ones, you will never be happy at this church if your position is, I know abortion's wrong, but... Or I know racism is wrong, but. Or I know human trafficking is wrong, but. We are being seduced by evil spirits to focus on things that matter, but they're not moral equivalents. And we are trying to soothe our conscience by fixing smaller things while bigger things are left unresolved. And no, I'm not going to name what the smaller and bigger things are. I'm not going to name big things like abortion. I won't name that. 
because I don't want anybody to be uh, offended when I talk about human trafficking. So I won't mention that and racism. No, these things are huge. But loved ones, I want to tell you what's happening. The stench of what the storm has left on the ground has deceived us into thinking that this can be solved if I'm a fervent enough Democrat or if I'm a fervent enough Republican or if I'm a fervent enough this, that, or the other. Now, there's nothing wrong with being part of a political party. I believe in that. We have such a great opportunity in America to be able to vote. I just wish that it was legitimate voters that voted all the time. But we have a great uh, opportunity to vote and direct our nation. But loved ones, we are being intimidated where it, it, the, America used to be where if you disagreed with somebody, you would say, well, they're a good man, but I think they've got a bad idea. They're a good person, but I don't agree with what they're saying. I think, they're the, I think that's a good woman with a bad idea. Now, if you disagree with someone, what is inferred is they are evil and we need to eliminate them. And that's, that's becoming more and more a part of our culture. Um, I, I will never forget um, John Kennedy's statement in the 1960 um, presidential election. I was alive then. I don't remember him saying this then, but I, but I watched it on TV years later. Uh, during the debate, John Kennedy said, I am no more patriotic than my opponent, Mr. Nixon. He said the Democrats and Republicans are very, very similar in many ways. He said we are equally patriotic we equally love our country. We equally want our children to have a good education and be safe. We equally want to, to uh, keep the threat of nuclear war from the Soviet Union far away from our shores. He said, we essentially believe the same things. He said, and we essentially want the same things. But he said, the difference is in how we achieve it. Now, I, I want to tell you, I can live with that kind of political debate all day long. We want the same thing, but we differ on how we need to achieve it. I think that's healthy politics. But now we have come to a situation where there is such extreme toxicity that it's affecting the church. The dead corpses around us are polluting the air that we breathe and polluting the water that we drink. And we don't know how to love somebody that has a different view than we have. And so we say, this is wrong, but. Yeah, we ought to do that, but. And, and working together is almost impossible right now and will remain that way unless the church rises up to be salt and light and we show how to love people that don't love us. And we haven't been taught well how to do that. And I think one of the, we, we've, if we're going to be the remnant, we've got to be the remnant. And you know how Jesus said to deal, are you guys with me here? Okay. Um, what, what Jesus said, when you are mistreated, when you are despised, when you are hated, he said, you have to practice opposite behavior. If someone uh, curses you, bless them. If someone does wrong to you, do good to them. It, we've got to counter the culture. So many churches are, how, how, can, how closely can we look like the culture? 
We've never had a command to look like the culture. We've had a command to preserve the life of the culture by being different. Now, you say, well, where, where do we start? I'm, fi I'm fine to help save the culture. All they have to do is believe what I believe. Love them, and please, I, 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 need to, I need to give one disclaimer. There's nothing wrong with politics, nothing wrong with being part of a party. I have very strong political feelings. I, I, believe that, I believe that I am, I mean, in my mind, I believe I'm right and profoundly right, but I would never put that in the pulpit as part of the gospel message. You see, people, I used to think that, boy, the early church had it hard. They didn't have any political rights. What did Paul tell them to do? Honor the king, pray for those that have authority over you. Just pray, nothing more you can do. And then, and then in the New Testament, it's, we're praying for those of you that had your property seized. We're praying for those of you that were executed. We're praying for those of you that were in jail. Um, the, the, the New Testament picture of the church was not some happy group of name it and claim it believers that were getting everything they wanted by a good, strong confession. No, they were trying to survive because they knew their kingdom was not of this world. Oh, Justin, I don't know. I need to throw something, but <laughs> we, 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 we call great faith something that was alien to the early church. They understood the fellowship of his sufferings. And I think God is doing a work where we need to understand those things again. He's bringing us back to that place where we can truly be effective in our culture, not by looking like the culture, but by being different from the culture. Where do we start? I think we start with our politics. Um, I, think that, um, I think that politics is our weapon of choice right now. We, we have, have, now don't get me wrong, I believe that God, I, I believe that it's, it matters who's in the White House. Absolutely matters who's in the White House. There are some people that if they're in the White House, I think we're in for, for you know, a, a hellacious four years. There are some people that I think if they're in the White House, we might be able to turn some things and go in the right direction. There's nothing wrong with having an opinion like that. But when you make it the litmus test of who you will love, and you make it the litmus test of who you'll have fellowship with, that's, that's a dangerous thing. That's going to produce death every time. And I believe, I really believe this, and I can only speak for our church, but I think God is trying to get us to the point where we understand the value of politics and we understand the place of politics, but we understand that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. And can I tell you that God can do what he wants to do no matter who's in the White House. Now don't say, well, I'm not even going to vote then. That's, that, I think that is poor stewardship. You have an opportunity that a lot of people in the world don't even have. But I want to tell you, you need to start thinking with your mind instead of being told who to vote for by organizations or, or whatever. You need to think and pray and think, how would Jesus re regard this situation? And until the church begins to do that, I don't even know if we deserve the right to vote. But I think he's going to help us do that. You say, well, it's just not that easy. Pastor, people are crazy. I know. I know. Thank God they're all in those other churches. It's not in ours. 
But I want to talk to you about a man named Habakkuk. He was a man that would have been a good member of an Assemblies of God congregation. He was a man that would have understood the trauma of midterm elections. His story is told in three scenes, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3 of his very small book. Now, Hezekiah, I mean Hezekiah, um, Habakkuk was what we call a minor prophet. And I'm not talking down to you, but I know some of you are new Christians. The minor prophets, there's about 12 of them, they were called minor not because they were unimportant. They were called minor only because of the length of their writing. It was, it was short. So Isaiah with 66 chapters was called a major uh, uh, prophet. Jeremiah with what, 52 I think, was a major prophet. Um, Daniel, even though his book was not that long because of the content was called a major prophet. But then you have people like Habakkuk, uh, uh, Joel, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Malachi. You have those 12 books that are called minor prophets because they're relatively short. You got one kind of long one. Hosea uh, is, is longer, but that, that's what it meant by, by minor prophet. But he was a minor prophet, not because he was unimportant. He was very important. And I want you to see what he was struggling with. And then I want us to see how he handled it. And then I want to send us marching in the right direction. Chapter 1, the oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. How long, Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? Now, I mean, this was, this is the preacher. And he didn't say, oh, Lord, thou knowest that I knowest that you hear. And I would never imply that thouest doesn't just hear but I'm just having a bad day. He, no, that's not the way he prays. Lord! And, 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 the, and the Hebrew grammar or text of this indicates it wasn't Lord. It was, Lord, why aren't you listening to me? Now you do that to your parents, you might get a whipping. <laughs> but God can handle even our anger. I cry out to you, and that's a strong word. I cry out, Violence! Yet you do not save social injustice, but you don't do anything about it. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? I don't even want to see this. And it's all that I see. It's in front of me all the time. Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. And that's what we hear every day. The law is not enforced. Justice is, is withheld from people that need justice. The poor and needy don't have a fair shake. And it just, that's what he was saying. He said, for the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. So he, in chapter two, says, I got to do something about this. Now, the first thing we learn about Habakkuk is his attitude stinks. It absolutely stinks. But in chapter two, he says, I've got to do something. And this is what he says. He said, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart. And I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I will reply when I am reproved. 
He knew that his answer was with God and he knew that he was a watchman. And can I tell you what's tough about being a prophetic person and a watchman person? It's, it's tough because you indeed hear from the Lord and you see things from the Lord, but you don't have an official position. See, I mean, if, if I feel like I'm hearing something, something from the Lord, I just tell guys, guys, I need to talk about this Sunday and I have a way to express, but you might not ever have a way to express. And it's frustrated, frustrating, but at least he has a good attitude. He said, I'm going to see what God will say to me. I'm going to go back and I'm going to watch. I'm going to listen and look how wonderful his attitude is. And then I'll figure out what I'm going to do when he tells me I'm wrong. Boy, you talk about forward thinking. And as he works through these things, we see him begin to find resolution in chapter three. Now I'm giving you the whole story, but we're going to take it step by step in just a moment. He says uh, in chapter three, Lord, I've heard the report about you and I fear. Oh Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known in wrath, remember mercy. You know, I, I was talking to somebody this week. It, it's so easy to focus on verses about God's wrath and his dealing with sin and his harshness towards sin. And, and I could be very easily understood with what I'm about to say. But I was struck just this last week or two, I was struck at how often, I mean, it's almost 100% of the time, how often God's wrath words are for people that reject him, not for his children. Oh, I know when we sin, we've got to repent. I know when we do wrong, we've got to be corrected. We know from Hebrews that chastisement is part of our life. But if we're not careful, we'll serve a God that we think is just looking for a reason to whack us upside the head. Instead, he is a God who delights in mercy. Oh, that's another sermon for another time. Don't leave though, because there's more here. Okay. In your wrath, remember mercy. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You struck the head of the house of the evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. I love this. Selah. <laughs> Lord, you're looking for the wicked. You're going to cut him from neck to thigh. Oh, think about it. <laughs> Hallelujah. Something's changed in this boy that he can put Selah at the end of a sentence like that. Though the fig tree, here's his conclusion, though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Now I said earlier, we don't say abortion's wrong, but racism's wrong, but we don't operate in buts. We operate in yets. See, yet I will exalt in the Lord. See, he didn't say, but I will exalt in the Lord. He says, this is the reality. This is the fact. This is a problem. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. And that's why we still deal with things like abortion. And that's why we still fight things like racism. There are other targets easier to deal with. But we never say but, we say yet. Okay, we're going to deal with this and we're going to deal with this. And it's difficult. 
Yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on high places. I, we, I read that as a kid. And I thought, what do, you, what do you mean? And there's a book, Hind's Feet on High Places. Why, did he, why does he say, I'm going to walk like a hind, uh, like, like that kind of deer? Well, the, the thing about that deer is they're able to go in high places because of consistency. Each foot goes into track that the other foot has made. He said, and if you've ever been to En Gedi in Israel, you see, it's probably where David wrote this. There, there are these amazing animals uh, in, in the uh, antelope family, the deer family. And they are, they are walking little narrow ledges and they go up one after another and they go everywhere. And I, you know, I was praying in tongues over them. They're going to fall. They're going to fall. But they are steady and they're sure-footed because they learn if this spot held this foot, it'll hold this foot. And so they, 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 they step and it provides a, a, a stable setting. And Levens, I'm not trying to be allegorical. I'm not trying to spend too long here, but Habakkuk was saying, look, there are steps that have worked and I'm going to take those same steps. I don't need to deconstruct the gospel. I don't need to try another religion. I don't need to go into something because it's a new age. If it worked before, it'll work now. That's the nature of faith. It's the nature of, the, of God's word. He says, he makes me walk in my hind, uh, uh, high places. And, and I, I love this. He says, for the choir director on my stringed instruments. He says, this, this is such a great discovery. I want Pastor Glenn to write a song about this. We need to sing about this Sunday. Now, I want us to understand two things, and I'm going to try to run through there. I wrote it all down for you because I knew I was going to be pressed to get through. Um, and then we're going to tie it up with how, how do we live then? What do we do? Uh, let's talk about understanding the plight of the prophet. Um, the midterm elections are upon us, and the odds are that some of us are going to be very upset with the results regardless of what happens. Whether we have a Democratic House and or Senate or a Republican House and or Senate, somebody in here is going to be mad. And you're going to be prophesying in the name of the Lord. And it's not going to be a prophecy in the name of the Lord. It's just going to be your anger, but it'll sound like the word of the Lord. And we will be just so upset um, no matter what happens. So that's why we're dealing with this now. We're dealing with it a couple of weeks out because I know early voting starts tomorrow. I wanted to talk to you about this. And I want to understand, Pastor Justin and I have done this, wow, I think maybe back to the, maybe back to the 2004 election, maybe. Um, no, I think, it was, I think it was maybe the 2000 election. We always had prayer uh, uh, we, we announced a prayer, uh, an evening of prayer for the new administration before we knew who the new administration was. Because we wanted people to know we would pray for a Democratic president or a Republican president. Demolican, Republican, it doesn't matter. We Americans, and, and, and it is our right to vote and not only to vote, but to have feelings about the way elections pan out. Um, but the problem is that we often allow elections to steal our joy yeah. 
steal our joy. You say, but I really feel like I'm right. You may be. But I tell you what, I live in a world that doesn't always do what's right. I, I'm, I am fellow citizens with people that don't always do what's right. So I can't let it steal my joy. I can't let it silence my song. And I can't afford to let it embitter my spirit because that, friends, is a sin. I believe that God is looking for people that will be part of the remnant that will embrace the five R's. And again, this is a sermon in itself, but we need to realize the true condition of America. We need to repent of our corporate sins and turn from our wicked ways. Number three, we need to return to the Lord with all of our heart. We need to take responsibility as Christian citizens to make our nation one, a nation with which God is pleased. We need to understand the importance of educating our children in righteousness because many of them have no context for religion here in America at all. And we need to rediscover righteousness. And the principle is this, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any, any people. Now, Habakkuk prophesied during a time when everything was coming apart in Judah. Let me tell you what Adrian Rogers says, that great pastor of Bellevue Baptist in Memphis, Tennessee. He's in heaven now. But he preached a message on Habakkuk, and I'm quoting from his message. He said, it was a time of national calamity. Justin, is this in the notes? Okay, good. It was a time of national calamity when everything that wasn't nailed down was coming loose. And the devil was pulling nails. We have anarchy in the nations, apostasy in the churches, apathy among the people, and we wonder why people do the things that they do. Now, to understand Habakkuk's words, you've got to understand this. He was a patriot. He was a prophet that loved God. He loved his people. He loved his country. This was his problem. It appeared that God was not answering his prayer. He didn't have trouble distinguishing between right and wrong. He didn't have trouble distinguishing between good people and bad people, uh, between righteous agendas and evil agendas. The problem, he understood all of that, but the more he prayed, the louder he prayed, the less it seemed that God was answering his prayer. Now, let's, let's kind of put on the other shoe and we'll be ready to walk. Um, let's look at today's problems through ancient eyes. I remember my daddy, uh, we were on a vacation. He showed me a, a Conestoga wagon. And uh, I, I was just all things cowboy. I just loved cowboy stuff. And this was the first Conestoga wagon. I mean, a real one that I had seen up close. And um, I said, Daddy, what, what is that? And um, he said, you don't know what that is? And I said, no, sir. He, he said, what do you think it is? And I didn't know if he was stalling for time. Or, but I said, I don't know. It just looks like it would make the wagon heavier and harder to, to move. And he said, this is what he said. He says, you'll never understand what that wagon, or that part of the wagon thinking or looking with 1962 eyes. He said, you've got to look with 1882 eyes. What do you think it would mean for them? 
I looked and I, I, I was clueless. I said, I, I don't know. And he said this, and it was basically, it looked like a boat that sat on the frame and then the wagon part sat on top of it. And I, but I was clueless. He said, what makes our car ride smooth? And I knew that. I said, the shock absorbers and, and, and uh, in our old car, the springs. He said, that's right. He said, but they didn't have those things. He says, this is kind of an early shock absorber. He said, it's basically a boat that sat on the wagon. And whenever they rode, he said, can you imagine riding from, from uh, uh, the Midwest all the way to the West Coast on boards? He said, you'd, you're, he said, your spine would be up in your head. He said, in 1962, we wouldn't think about it. But in 1882, this was lit. I said, it looks like a boat. He says, it was a boat that would sway and would rock and would roll. And when people sat in the wagon, it gave them a comfortable sway and it gave them a cushion. And it meant they could ride all the way across the country because that boat made their seating more comfortable. And I thought, now I understand, but I had to look with ancient eyes. And, and I hope you understand what I'm saying. We need to understand what Habakkuk was seeing in order to understand why he was so upset. So let's look with some ancient eyes. And what we're going to find is um, three things. Number one, there was a problem he couldn't resolve. See, we, we, we have a lot of ways to solve a lot of problems. But he didn't understand how to resolve his problem. He didn't understand why heaven seemed to be silent. And we read that in verses 1 and 2. He was perplexed. He was in agony. He was yelling. He was shouting. He, he just, he had no idea why God wasn't working. And that's why I encourage you to read Psalms. Read five Psalms every day. Because every battle you will have emotionally is dealt with in the Psalms. Every one. And there, you'll come upon that day where those psalms are grouped together, where David said, how long, O Lord? How long? I mean, he's like a two-year-old. How long? How long? How long? How long? And then you get past that psalm, you go to another one where it's a little bit easier. Why? 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 One of my grandkids asked me so many questions the other day something about the Bible. And I, I was trying to answer every question. And I was, I was just so tired. And I love for my grandkids to ask me questions. I said, well, the reason that that's true is probably because about 78 of scholars have deemed according to the extant Ugaritic text that that was a culturally appropriate thing. And I was just, that was just being funny. He looked at me and said, oh, <laughs> Not only was it not true, it didn't make any sense. Oh, okay. <coughs> he didn't understand why heaven seemed to be silent. Now, loved ones, the problem is that heaven was silent. Don't be surprised when God is silent for a while because sometimes, have you ever had somebody want to talk to you, want to ask you a question, and you say, just, just one minute, just one minute. You're working on something. And sometimes when God is silent, it's not that he can't multitask. He just wants to work in a way. He says, just, just be patient a second. I'll show you. 
but he couldn't understand why heaven seemed to be silent. Number two, he was, he was grieved, uh, or not number two, but number two under, under the first one. He was grieved over the extent of sin in Judah and throughout the world. He didn't understand why God was allowing the agenda of hell to appear to succeed. And he didn't understand why God was using people more wicked than Israel was. I want to tell you, when you can't understand why God is silent, you've got multiple problems because not only is God silent, uh, the people that you're praying for seem to be getting worse and God is allowing hell to win, it looks like. I tell you what, I squalled and squalled and squalled when, our, uh, when Roe v. Wade was overturned. I thought, okay, it's going back to the States. This is a huge step in the right direction. And I think it was. But loved ones, I want to tell you, I, I, I was overwhelmed by the pushback of, of the pro-abortion camp. And we, and we haven't even seen that full-blown yet. And, and, you know, I went from, woo, hallelujah, to, golly, what is going on? I want to tell you, um, I know I'm going to be offensive to some of you, but I'm not trying to be. So, therefore, I don't want to talk to you after church about it. <laughs> but don't underestimate the hatred against pro-life by those that are pro-abortion. You say, well, I'd rather you say pro-choice. I, I don't think it's pro-choice. I think it's pro-abortion because you wouldn't get so upset over someone having another choice if you were pro-choice. You're pro-abortion. And, and I, I want to tell you, I went into a funk for a couple of days because I thought, Lord, they are turning this thing around. They are turning this thing around. Now, I think it's going to go the other way, but... You can't take your progress reports from this world. And then, and then who was God using? The Edomites and the Babylonians. People far worse than Judah. Far worse. It's like having a serial killer do in-jail therapy for a shoplifter. There was a problem he couldn't resolve. And loved ones, I want to tell you, life is going to be like that. Some days there are going to be problems that you just can't resolve. Number two, letter B on your outline, there was a perspective he had to realize. You see, we've always are in the tension of where is our worldview going to be based? Is it going to be based on the wisdom of man or is it going to be based on the word of God? Uh, wisdom is what the world opts for. You know, follow the science, common sense. It, you know, wisdom is put in all kinds of forms. But there is a thing called a biblical perspective, and we've got to learn, sooner or later, we've got to learn how to anchor our worldview on God's Word. Psalm 73 was written by the music man, Asaph. He said, I had gotten so dis discouraged that I would no longer went to the house of God. He's the worship leader. And he's calling in with headaches. I, I wouldn't even go to church. Why? Because I pay my tithe and my chariot breaks down. 
but my neighbor's doesn't break down and he's a pagan. You know, uh, I raise my children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and they're sick. They got snotty noses all the time, but my pagan neighbor's boys, they're fine. I mean, you say, oh, that's, that. I want to tell you, life will wear on you like that. I, I, I pay my tithe, but I lost my job. He doesn't pay his tithe. In fact, he wastes it on wine, women, and song, and he gets a promotion. And this is what Asaph said, verily have I washed my hands in vain. Verily comes from verity. It means truthfully. You know, whenever Jesus says verily, verily, it's like, this is the truth. Listen to this. He said, I have washed my hands for nothing. King James says, verily I've washed my hands in vain. In other words, the lead worshiper says, this is not working and it doesn't work and it doesn't pay to serve the Lord. That's, that's over about halfway through the psalm. And then he says something. Now this was a case where a but is good. He said, but then... After I made up my mind, but then I went to the house of the Lord. And we don't know what happened. We don't know if he walked by a Royal Ranger class and saw those commanders instilling hope into those boys. We don't know if the substitute worship leader sang a song from Asaph's childhood that sparked his faith. We don't know if the priest read just the right scripture. He said, but I, I had given up completely until I went to church and something happened in church that reminded me of the truth. You see, when we get down, we have a tendency to go anywhere but church. We have a tendency to go to the bar. We have a tendency to go to the whatever we just, we just say, that's not working. I'll go try something else. And what the psalmist says in Psalm 73, he says, I guarantee you there will be days you don't think anything's working at all. There will be days you believe church is an absolute waste. There will be days that every verse makes you vomit. So what do you do? Go to church. Because when you get there, God orchestrates something. I don't know how he does it. You've all been, I'm too tired to go to church. I'm just too tired. I, my day was so, especially when we had Sunday night service. We have small groups now, but we had Sunday night service. Uh, I, I, I was worn out on Sunday night and I was the preacher, you know. But people say, I just, I, you know, I just can't go again. I can't go tonight. But over and over again, and it's happened to me, you go and something happens that you're energized. <sighs> there was a perspective he had to realize. I've got to anchor my life on God's word. The just will live by faith. Now, what, what's the, 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 the third thing? There was praise that he had to recover. Okay. Just there was a problem he couldn't resolve. There was a perspective that he had to realize, but there was praise that he had to recover. And I'm not talking about mind over matter or just saying the right things, but there's something mystical. I started to say magical, but mystical about praise. Um, when I went to my brothers this last week, there were so many options I could take. 
There were so many needs, so many, I was going to have to thread a schedule to get to my brothers. And I said, well, I can go here, I can go here, I can go here, I can go here. And I just could not get settled over it. I, I felt like I needed to go, but there was no word that my brother was about to die. I mean, we knew he was terminal, but we, we weren't expecting this. And I just couldn't get clear. I just couldn't get clear. And I told Ramona, I said, i tell you what I'm going to do. I said, I'm not going to pray anymore. I'm not going to think anymore. I said, I'm going to go into the prayer room and I'm going to turn a timer on and I am going to play and listen to worship for 30 minutes. And I'm just going to worship. I'm not going to say, Lord, what do I do? I'm just, I'm not going to answer the phone. 30 minutes. And I set the timer actually for 32 so I could get comfortable. <laughs> and I turned on the pray. I just praised. I just praised. And at the end of 30 minutes, the timer went off. I called Ramona. I said, I know what I need to do. I need to go. God wants me to go now. And he was, he died in my arms in less than 48 hours. God put an amazing thing together for me. And it came out of an attitude that said, Lord, I, I've got to get my song back over this. I am, I'm struggling. I need to get my song back. And um, I'm telling you that th th there's praise that needs to be recovered. Habakkuk knew that the battle for a nation is won with the help of praise and worship. And the reason that works is because worshiping God puts everything back into, back into perspective. And look at the resolution it gave him. He said, you know what? God may never, may never tell me why. He may never solve the problem. But he said, if we are destitute in our culture, if the food trucks don't come to buy low, if the cows don't get milked, if the food doesn't get delivered, if the gas pumps are empty and everything falls apart, if, if my... If my uh, cell phone starts working and the grid goes down. You know, just imagine all of these things. He said, I'm going to praise God. I'm going to trust God. What do we say? Well, if my candidate doesn't get elected, I'm moving to Canada. I don't think that's a good solution. Okay. What are the life lessons? What are the Christian life lessons? Let's hurry. Number one, the middle ground is an illusion. We, we often think that balance means you're just in the middle where you don't believe anything. Um, it's been a couple of times I've been honored by somebody from another group saying, well, he's really balanced. And then when I heard, had them describe balance, I thought I've just been insulted. If that's balance, I don't want to be balanced. Um, the middle ground is an illusion. There was a time when most of America was fairly united on core issues, even though we disagreed on the best way to achieve those results. But you had middle ground. You, you could do it this way. You could do it that way. But when a person was elected, you supported them for four years. And I remember my dad saying one time, I, my dad was a political animal. You know, he just, he loved politics. And his candidate lost. And I said, Daddy, what are, what are you, what are we? I said, what are we going to do? I thought, you know, probably the communist would come in and take over West Florida. He said, what do you mean? I said, our man lost. What are we going to do? He said, oh, son, there's another election in four years. 
And I thought, well, okay. So I just got to wait four years, you know. There's no middle ground anymore. Now, I do want to say this. I urge you to examine the platforms of parties and candidates before voting. Um, but again, I, 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 there are some candidates that I can't vote for, regardless of their party, because of what they endorse. I, I, I can't and I won't. But don't let that become part of the salvation process that you think is going to get everybody in the kingdom. I don't know any better way to say it. Vote right. Vote with intelligence. Vote the way a Christian ought to vote. And can I tell you this? Especially when you factor in the Catholic Church. If, if the evangelicals in America and the Catholics in America, just those two groups, if they voted Christian uh, principles, we wouldn't have most of these problems. Well, some of you are getting a little nervous. Turn, turn a little purple around the gills. Let me go ahead and, and try to keep moving here. The middle ground is an illusion. And the day of saying, well, I just want to just stay in the middle, there is no middle anymore. You, know, you don't have to be a political crusader, but you need to take your vote very, very seriously. Um, here's number two. The God of mammon is binding America. You say, Pastor, don't, please don't get into money. You've already talked about voting. Can we just go home and eat? It just don't get into money. Well, I, I need to talk about this for this reason. Uh, okay. There's a large Christian population in America. We've rejected God as a society and made him unwelcome in the marketplace. We've relegated him to be discussed only in churches and homes and have made a concerted, organized effort to silence the voice of Christians in America. You say, well, why can't we just say we're atheists? Because this is the nature of spiritual dynamic. When you have had a relationship with God, we learned this from Israel, and you turn from God, you don't turn from God to atheism. You might say you do, but you don't turn from God to no God. You choose another God. You may think you're an atheist, but you have embraced another deity. Uh, we see that in Jeremiah 2. God said the sin of Israel is not that they have just turned against me, but they've embraced another God. So loved ones, there's, there's no middle ground in this idea of, well, I'm just, you know, I've served God, but I just, I, I just want to be unaffiliated. I just would like to have no party. It doesn't work that way. And I believe what has happened in America, another sermon for another time, I believe that when America culturally turned from being essentially a Christian nation, Christian nation with problems, oh sure, we let slavery exist, we've mistreated American Indians, we've got, we had all kinds of problems, we were not a perfect nation, but at least we embraced principles that were pointing us in the right direction. But I want to tell you, when we turned, and you say, well, I, I, that's, if, they, if America is not going to do it right, they just, loved ones, have you ever had a bad time in your walk with the Lord? Are you glad the pastor didn't kick you out of church because you had an issue you needed to deal with? Nations have issues they need to deal with, just like people do, but they better get dealt with. No, I, I, I tell you, I think, I think back in the industrial age, and again, another sermon, 
or a Wednesday night history lesson. I think because of the prosperity of the industrial age, I think we shifted to another God. And I think we began to serve the God called Mammon. I believe that money became the God of America. And that's why we understand right now, every problem in America revolves around two things. And it's the spirit of mammon. I want to control and I want to consume. That's mammon. That's that's why Paul said the, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. He recognized that there is a power in greed and the worship of money that makes you want to control everything. If you don't have the money, you want to control everybody else's money. And you want to know how much you can get. How much can I get? That's driven by mammon. I listened to a, um, a high priest, a high priest, a, a, a Roman Catholic priest one time uh, in, a, in a spiritual development class. He, he was a phenomenal man. He said, I want to tell you boys something. We were young guys, maybe in our 20s. He said, I've been a, a priest for 50 years. I've heard confessions for 50 years. He said, I want you to think about something. I have heard everything imaginable confessed to me. Stuff that you would have never, he said, I guarantee you boys have never thought of this stuff. He said, I've heard everything confessed. Then he said this, but there is one thing that I have never heard confessed one single time. And I thought it was going to be something weird, you know. He said, nobody has ever confessed greed. Nobody has ever confessed an inordinate love of money. He said, it is the most deceptive, the most damning, the most controlling entity that I believe there is. He said, why do you think Paul said, I would have never confessed greed is in Romans. He was giving an illustration of the power of the law. He said, I would have never confessed greed unless God had nailed me on it. That's why in the average church in America, a good, solid, Bible-believing church, less than 40% of people tithe. That's why, that's why our, our government keeps taking more and more and more to control more and more and more. Taxes aren't a problem. The way we spend taxes are a problem. <coughs> well, that might be political, just... I wash my hands of that statement. (laughs) But don't you forget it. (laughs) The God of mammon is binding America. Number three, the intent of the Antichrist is to wear out the saints of the Most High. I've never seen a more vicious attack than we're seeing in America right now on a pro-life and upon the traditional family. And one historian had said that this is the way persecution follows. It's this path. First step of persecution seeks to marginalize Christians. You know, you can, you know, Chris Matthews a few years ago said, if you want to be a Christian, that's right, but run for pastor, not a political position. The first step seeks to marginalize Christianity. The second step seeks to villainize Christianity. 
Christians are the problem. And the third step is to criminalize Christianity. And I want to tell you in the Western nations of the United States and Canada, there are already efforts to criminalize for people for having a Christian position. Number four, you guys are listening so well, we're almost done. Number four, we need to ask God to help us understand the times and know what we ought to do. That's why we're praying. Justin tore up my prayer card a minute ago, but that's why we're asking God to give us understanding, help us see with his eyes. That's why we're asking him to give us unction that is an anointing to live out the life. And then unity. We have to have unity. And the last point is there are two steps in the right direction. They are exceedingly simple, but they are exceedingly difficult. There's never anything more difficult than these two things in the Christian life. Number one is to step out of Babylon. And number two is to step into grace. That's why Revelation ends with the call, come out, come out, come out, come out of this system. And then it begins to talk about the grace of God coming upon you. Loved ones, there's, there's more I'd like to share, but um, um, probably wisdom is to, is to stop here. Um, there, there's another vision that I wanted to end with. I'll share it with you another time. But this is what I'm saying for us. I, I, I'm not going to say something cliched like this election is the most important election in the history of our nation. But I, I will say this. I have never in, in my years, I've never sensed more spiritual activity over an election than these midterms. Now, I'm, I'm going to tell you, just because it goes this way or that way, doesn't mean we've lost or doesn't mean that we won. But I'm telling you, the, the danger we're at right now, and this is what I think God wants us to break out of, regardless of which way the election goes, the Lord wants us to break out of the tendency to be beat down and accept Babylon's agenda. He, he wants us, the enemy does, to just, to just get tired and, and, and you know what? We're, we're tired. We're all tired. We're, we, we're whipped, not whipped as in defeated, but we just, we, we're tired. We, we, just, we just came from our pastor's and elder's retreat. We've been doing this for 28 years. And there ain't never been a time we all wanted to go to bed at 8 o'clock. We're tired. And probably you are too. And I don't think those guys are getting old. No, I'm not. I think the things we talked about, there was just a, there was just a weight that the enemy attaches to things. And right now it's easy to just, you handle it. You handle it. My mom handled me saying why one time. Probably get her arrested nowadays, but I was proud of her. I kept saying, I asked if I could do something. No, baby. Now, I didn't know she was sick and she was really struggling with pain at the moment. 
I said, I said, why? Why, why can't I do it? It's, and I, I, we're always told growing up, we can't ask why. But I sensed blood in the water. She hesitated before she said no. And I said, why, mother? And she said, I said, no. And I asked her why two or three times. And she said, Stephen, now I was Steve or Stevie. When I was Stephen, that meant there was a legal action about to be taken against me. She said, Stephen, go to your room. And don't ask me why anymore. And I thought, I've got her. If you could just explain why. My mom was washing dishes, and in one of the smoothest moves I've ever seen, she came out with the plate, cracked it over my head. It shattered into a hundred pieces or so, I imagine. And I went to my room. <laughs> Didn't hurt me, it just scared me. My mom had never done anything like that. I asked her later, I said, why did you hit me? She said, you kept asking why. But I said, why did you hit me? She said, because I was about to cave and say yes, and I wasn't going to let a middle school kid force me to say yes when I meant no. And I said, well, you could have just told me no. <laughs> and I was kidding. She looked at me. She said, there are more plates. And I said, You see, the enemy sometimes senses blood in the water, and that's why he just keeps pounding, just keeps pounding. But this is what the Word says. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. See, there's a higher rock. There's a higher place. You don't have to get whacked with the plate. And my mom was a good mom. She, a good mom. she wasn't. She wasn't abusive in any way. That was just, a, that was the product. That was discipline from parents who grew up in the depression. You know, you just do what you need to do. And I'll tell you this, to her credit, I don't think I ever asked her why again my whole life. Now, please don't go home and do this to your children because you're in an age that'll get you in trouble. I'm talking about the olden days. <laughs> Loved ones, we have to dismiss. But I want to tell you, I know you're tired. I know the aching some of you feel in your bones right now. I mean, you literally are aching and you think, well, I'm sick or I've got the flu. And, but the, and, and you may have, but the, the probability is that you're just under attack. The enemy wants to wear you down. That's part of his agenda. When Daniel was explaining the end times, when he was explaining this whole thing, he says the job of Antichrist is to wear out the saints of the Most High. Loved ones, the biggest thing we're hearing in the church right now is I just, I just want to give up. They don't want to leave the church. They don't want to leave the Lord. They're just in a fight. They just want to give up. And loved ones, I want to tell you, there's strength for you in the presence of the Lord. If you are overwhelmed, you cry out and you say, oh Lord, lead me to the rock that is higher than I am. Lead me to the rock 
that is higher than I am. Ministry team, would you please come to the front? We need you to come, Jesus. We need you to minister life. Come on, ministry team. Even if you're not on duty today, we, we need you up here if you could come. That's good. Thank you. Because sometimes you reach the point you can't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Sometimes you reach the point you can't just say, oh, I'm going to do it anyway. Sometimes you need to be led to the rock that's higher than you are. Sometimes you need God to breathe strength and life 